Last uh, week we took in Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10 and uh, camped there as as we started. Then we read uh, Mark uh, chapter 10, 42 through 45. Just uh, not a very long uh, portion there. But here's what it says. uh, Mark 10, 42 and 45. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so, see, uh, and so saying that, Jesus taught us that it's, it's good to pursue greatness. I've been working on the idea of pursuing greatness uh, for a while now. That we should all be pursuing greatness. It just has to be sure that, that we're doing the, the best of pursuing greatness. Well, and so saying that, that that's good for it's so saying that Jesus taught us that it's good to pursue that greatness, but that true greatness is, is not high attainment and high achievement resulting in power and position and prestige and popularity and possessions. Rather, true greatness is the personal inner possession of Christ-like character and the outward practice of Christ-like service. That is true greatness. It's humility before God and man, putting others first and serving others in the name of Christ and for his his Christ's glory. That's true greatness. That's greatness defined by God, who is the greatest of all beings, and it reflects God. It involves fulfilling our purpose in life that gives lasting value to all we do. This day we look now in the second book of Timothy. Also, we just call it 2 Timothy in our Bibles. This day we look into this book to discover some of the particulars of that. What are some of the ways that greatness is manifested in the daily lives of Christ's followers? It's been said that the secret of success in life is for a man or a woman to be ready for his or her time when it comes. But let's see how that fits in with what the Bible has to say about greatness. And here's the background about this uh, portion of Scripture known as 2 Timothy. This 2 Timothy part, from this, we have a letter. This is, we have a letter. It's a letter written by Paul the Apostle to his closest and most trusted associate in ministry. Timothy. Timothy. Paul, a great man of God who had served in the ministry of Jesus for more than 30 years, was at the time he wrote this letter, he was imprisoned in Rome. He was close to being executed, not because he had committed any real crime, but only for the crime of of being a Christian. Timothy was, at that time, in the city of Ephesus in the Roman Empire province known as Asia. He was serving there to help the Christians in the churches of that region who were struggling on account of the presence of the false teachers of Christianity and others who had disrupted the churches and had led, others, uh, led many others astray from worshiping Jesus and God's word. Paul wrote to encourage Timothy 
in that difficult ministry. And to also challenge Timothy to not only stay true to his calling from God, but to step up as a leader. And after he, Paul, passed from the scene. Previously, Paul had encouraged Timothy to stay faithful to the mission of making disciples. He told them that it was worth the dedication, the discipline, the hard work, the hardship, because of its importance, particularly helping the spiritually lost to find salvation in God. But also because ultimately you are on the winning side, the side of God who will not be defeated. And because there are rewards for faithfulness, both now and later in both general and special. But he also gave a warning. There's a great loss for unfaithfulness. There is great loss for unfaithfulness. Now in this last half of chapter 2, there we see that Paul writes of two aspects of, of greatness, which are separate but linked together. To be great, one must be ready to serve, but also to maintain readiness and to stay the course. The word readiness does not really mean merely a willingness or eagerness for something. Rather, it is true readiness. True readiness. For example, oftentimes in years past with my children, when they were very young, I would say, you know, we might be going somewhere. You know, and as we're going out the door, I'd say, are you ready to go? And they would say, yes, yes, I'm ready to go. And then i say, uh, uh, to school, church, play, what is it? But are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? And when they say yes, I would say, well, then where are your shoes? Where is your jacket? Where's your, slu- your, your sleeping bags? Where's your lunch money? Where's your homework? Or whatever they needed for the particular occasion. And they, they would not only not have it with them, they would even not know where to find it. I'm starting to trend that way also, unfortunately. <laughs> but they were ready only in the sense of, of being willing and eager, but they were not really fully ready. They were not actually prepared to go, nor to succeed in what they were, getting, what they were setting out to do. That's not the sort of readiness that, that Paul writes of here. Rather, he speaks of real, full readiness. Readiness as defined, truly, as defined in the dictionary. Readiness means to be available and prepared for service, action, or progress. Well, let's think about that. To be available and prepared for service, action, or progress. In verse 20, Paul uses a metaphor to make his point in this. And in in 2 Timothy 2.20, he he talks about uh, a, a large house. A large house where there are articles, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are special for purposes and some for common use. And he writes of a, a large house. This is in, in the Bible. He's, he writes of a large house. A large house in this context meant the house of a, a wealthy person or an important person. The original meaning of the word vessels refers to utensils, such as pots and pans and dishes and cups. The NIV translation, translation uh, takes the, the word articles, but the word vessels is a better word to use because it conveys the idea of items into, something, into which something is placed. 
especially a, a vessel like a pitcher, a cup, a bowl, which we can be filled. So then we are vessels which carry the good news of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Since then, we are vessels which carry the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some to honor and some to dishonor. That is some of these vessels, namely the gold and the silver are, as the NIV puts it, for noble use. That is, they're for the personal use of the important person who lives in the home. Or they are for use on special occasions. They might be displayed for decorations or used to, have, uh, or used to serve a special guest as a gesture of honor. Other vessels of the house, though, namely those uh, made by wood or clay, are, are not so special. They're plain in design, cheap in value, disposable, easily thrown away. They're used for the most common purposes in the menial tasks. In fact, they're often for the dirty and vile tasks of household cleanup and maintenance. Now, what is this metaphor all about? Well, from the context here and from Paul's use of these images in other readings, it's clear that the large, uh, the, uh, large house is an image of God's house, which is the Christ. Uh, which is the church, I should say, or at least the visible professing church of Jesus Christ. The vessels, then, are the members of the church, those who profess faith in Christ and who participate in the life, worship, and ministry of the church. They are the instruments of God, the servants of God for his glory and his purposes. Now, Paul doesn't go much much beyond that with this metaphor, except to indicate in the following verses that the, goal, that the goal of every Christian should be to become a vessel of honor in God's house. In God's house. That is to be an instrument in the hands of God. To be a servant of God who's pleasing and valuable to God. Who honors God and who is available to him. There's no higher privilege, no greater honor, no more satisfying experience than being such an instrument of God for the furtherance of his purposes. And we should seek to be such servants. But what does it take to be that? What are the qualities of such a vessel? Well, Paul lists three of them in verse 21. A vessel of honor is sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Let's take that in again. A vessel of honor is sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Is that us? Sanctifying uh, means literally set apart as holy for God. Set apart as for holy, uh, as holy for God. When uh, Laurel, my wife's uh, father, was alive, and uh, he, we would go to his ranch. We go to Grandpa's ranch because you could go and have a lot of fun there. And when you go to Grandpa's ranch, you could go swim in any of three lakes. They're not really huge lakes. They're just big ponds. But they're good big ponds. You can have a lot of fun in big ponds. Going to to Grandpa's ranch, you could swim in any of the lakes. But unless you were his grandchild, you could only fish in two of them. You could only fish in two of them. That's because Grandpa saved one of the lakes for fishing with his grandchildren only. That lake was sanctified, so to speak, because he wanted to be sure his grandchildren would always catch fish. In Old Testament times, the utensils and instruments of the temple used for the worship were set apart for God only. 
They were never used for any lesser purpose, but were entirely dedicated to God and His service. In the same way, a vessel of honor in Christ's church, that is a great servant, is wholly set apart for God and His work. He or she is totally dedicated. He or she lives for and serves no other person or no other thing above God, including oneself. He or she lives for God and is dedicated to Him. Useful to the master means to be available and to uh, possess qualities that make one usable and valuable to the master. This means having both good skills and good character. Prepared for every good work means to be an eager and uh, to be eager and willing, but more than that, to be fit and able, to be in shape and sharp for any deed to which he or she might be called by God and good to go at any time. This is the, the, vessel, uh, the vessel of honor, the valuable instrument. Put it all together, and we may rightly say that the vessel of honor is one who's really fully ready to serve God. But what does it take to be that instrument? Knowledge and understanding of God's word? Awareness of one's serving gifts? Personal discipleship, training, and ministry? Experience in serving God? All these things are good and valuable. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't mention a single one of them here. Instead, he emphasizes just one thing that he says will result in becoming a vessel of honor and a valuable servant of God. And that's per, that is called personal purity. And the things you've heard of me, heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. What are these things? What are these things? Well, the attitudes and behaviors of ungodliness, wickedness, straying from the truth, It is the rebelliousness against God and the resulting sinfulness that marks their lives. Verse 20 says, If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor. You see, Paul brings it down to this. Purity is the key. Purity is the key. You say, how so? Why is purity so important? Why is it apparently the most important factor for being ready to serve and thus being a vessel of honor? Well, Paul here doesn't go into detail about this, but as, the, the, uh, as John Stott uh, puts it, had put it, he's passed on, he's with the Lord. But, but Paul here does not get into detail about this, but as John Stott puts it, he says, the overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that God chooses to use clean vessels for the fulfillment of his purposes. And that makes total sense because God is completely pure. 1 John 1, 5, He, that would be God, God is light, and in Him there's no darkness at all. It's not surprising then that He allies Himself with those who are about purity and that He takes as His servants those who are like Him for what He is for and they reflect Him. But there's also this. Purity is essential for readiness to serve because those who are the most open and ready to receive the empowering of the Holy Spirit for service and those who are pure. Also, the pure are the, the most attuned to serving God and thus the best candidates for succeeding as servants of God. They are also the most reliable, the best fit 
for getting the job done. God can empower any person physically and mentally, but only the pure are valuable for spiritual service. Titus 1.16, we read this. They claim to know God, but their actions, by their actions, they deny them. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So we say, okay, but, but purity is not something that is natural for me. Have you ever run that one by yourself to see if that really worked? Okay, but purity is not something that is natural for me. Well, actually, it's not natural for any human being. We're sinners with a sin nature, and we're not naturally prone to purity, nor are we able to, in ourselves, to become pure. But through a relationship with Jesus, that natural state can be turned around and transformed. When we enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, through faith in him for forgiveness of sin, and through our willingness to follow him as Lord of our lives, we enter into a realm of sanctification that is of being set apart from sin and for God. And it's incredible. But here's what we have to understand about it. For the follower of Jesus Christ, sanctification is both a done deal and a lifelong process. Here's how it works. From the moment that we establish a relationship with Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, and he sanctifies us. That is, he he sets us apart for God, making us one of God's own. We're positionally sanctified in relationship with God, not by our own purity, but by his presence. And that's a done deal. It's immediate. It's complete. It's permanent. But that positional sanctification does not mean that we have instantaneously become without sin. That is something into which we must grow. And the Holy Spirit dwelling in us makes the possible and helps us to grow in purity to become more personally sanctified. He, the Holy Spirit, always does his part. But we each must do our part. Verse 21 says, those who clean themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Think about that again. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Notice we must cooperate with the Holy Spirit to cleanse ourselves. Without our cooperation, our action, it will not happen. But the more we cooperate, the more it will happen. So how do we cooperate? Well, the New Testament consistently teaches that cooperating for spiritual growth always means dual action. Dual action. Leaving behind one thing while simultaneously moving toward Another thing. Start with thinking about this. Jesus said, to receive my salvation and become my follower, you must leave behind, you must leave behind living for yourself and instead live for me. Also in can, uh, consider in regarding to uh, godliness, living a godly life, from the book of Romans, chapter 12, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and 
proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. In regard to sanctification, just call that purity. Read Romans 6, 11, 13. It says this, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let uh, sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Additionally, we can look at Colossians 3.1. Since then, here's the scripture says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Again, Colossians, but chapter 3, uh, 8 to 10 and 12 says, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, Malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now look here in 2 Timothy 2 at verse 22. Flee from the evil desires of your youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do you see the dual action in all of this? Both flee and pursue. Focus on that first phrase. Flee from youthful lusts. Because of the word lust, it's often said that Paul was writing here specifically about sexual immorality, but it's, that's not true. Yes, that it would be included, but it's more than that. The NIV translates it evil desires, and that is less uh, literal, but more accurately conveys that meaning. The word in the original refers to all sinful desires, whether it be the wrongful desire of physical pleasure, power, dominance over others, possession, self-glory, pride, sinful indulgence, or selfish ambition, and all of the sins related to those things. What Paul calls them? Paul calls them youthful lusts. Not just because they exert themselves in youth more than old age, but also because they rise up when we are young and They tend to linger for a long time. Now flee from these things, Paul says. Literally, run away from them. The Greek word Paul uses is the same as our English word for fugitive. Be a fugitive from sin. Run away from it. Run from danger. The idea here is don't mess with sin. Don't dabble in it. Don't give it a place in your house, your life. Don't linger as presence. Don't tolerate it. Make that the way you live. That's an order, an imperative command. But at the same time, pursue, get this, at the same time, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Note these four qualities. In Scripture, these qualities 
particularly the first three are identified consistently as the overarching Christ-like qualities of the Christian life. These are the essentials, the priorities from which all other qualities flow. Righteousness is uprightness. It's keeping attitudes and contact, uh, conduct that are in line with the character of God. Faith? Faith is confidence in, in and dependence upon God that results in trust in God and faithfulness to God. Love is God-like love, not based on emotion or what pleases me, but rather it focuses on the welfare of others. It is selfless and self-giving love that's more than just feeling for another person, but rather doing good for others. It's always acting in their best interests. Peace is living in, in harmony with God, with each other. Pursue these qualities and Christ-like attributes. Literally, run from them. Chase them. In Paul's day, the term was used of chasing after the enemy in war, chasing in an animal in a hunt, or chasing the finish line in a race. Hot pursuit is the idea. Be in hot pursuit of these things. You get the picture here? Purity doesn't just happen. And it's not the result of a casual approach to the spiritual life. It requires exertion. It requires dual action with a passion. You're beginning to see why so many make such little progress in purity. They make no action or effort, and there's no dual action. Some go all out when it comes to fleeing, but they fail to pursue. They're good at drawing hard lines against obvious things like sexual immorality, but they do not develop positive Christ-like qualities. They can become legalists, crisis and complainers. Others are all out in pursuit, but they fail miserably at fleeing. These might be good about showing compassion, making and keeping the peace, loving the unlovable, being positive, believing in God's promises. But they do not draw lines when it comes to sin. They might be good people who in the end disappoint or hurt others. We have to ask ourselves, what is, what is our tendency? I could say, what is your tendency, but I'm not going to ask you. I'll leave that for you. What is your tendency? Both fleeing and pursuing are required. Let's keep that in mind. This is what it's all about. It's about both fleeing and pursuing are required. Both are necessary for purity, which leads to readiness, which leads to greatness. What do we do? Choose both. That's the obvious. That's the obvious we learn here. Choose both. If that's what you want, let me give you some quick tips. You must establish your own relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son. Your eternal destiny depends upon that. You'll never rise to greatness apart from that relationship. Your guidebook in these matters is the in the Bible. So you need to regularly learn from it and be spiritually nourished by it. Last but not least, you must pursue with the right company. Remember, those who call on, on God from a pure heart are those who have humbled themselves before God, who have come to him in the way that he provided and requ required, and who are seeking to know him, be like him, and serve him with all their heart. Remember at all times, we've pushed out a lot of words. I've pushed out a lot of words these days. A lot of thoughts, lots of directions in this. Just remember this. God wants us all to be great. God wants all of us to be great. 
be great in the eyes of God, to be great as servants, to be great in so many other ways. God wants us all to be great. He's given us all the information. He showed us the way. We just take it in, in our hearts and let it run. Lord God, it's not always, not always the, the wonderful time to come to church and talk about sin. It's also the time when we, we come and we realize that all of us need you, Lord. Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus Christ. All of us. All of us are blessed by you. Holy Spirit, speak into us this day, this hour, this week. We pursue, we should be pursuing, we should be pursuing greatness, the greatness of God and his people. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.